Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. Welcome to Season 2 of the podcast. I'm here along with Luke Doris at the uh, Local 10 WPLG podcast studio in beautiful Pembroke Park, nestled between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. <laughs> and here it is again already. It seems like we just wrapped up the last season. It does. It really, yeah. it, it really does. And I guess we normally round off Pembroke Park to Miami, right? We just say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We just say we're in Miami. And uh, yeah, so we're we're um, here for our first podcast of the second year, and and uh, ready for another hurricane season. And I think you could. It's fair to say that a lot came out of 2018. Yes, a whole lot. Well, we had Hurricane Michael, we had Hurricane Florence, we had, uh, it was, of course, a a season to learn from where we went into it, you know, with the, uh, you know, thinking we were going to have an El Nino and a quieter than average season, which ended up being about average, but a very high impact season. Uh, There was a lot. It was a lot. And we have the director of the National Hurricane Center with us today. Uh, Ken Graham will be along here in just a moment, talk about 2018, and we'll talk about what's new for 2019 from the National Hurricane Center. We're recording this on, what is today? It's Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. So if you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10, check local10.com, the Max Tracker app, or the Local 10 weather app for any kind of current uh, information. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on right now. Not that there's a heck of a lot. Also, we want to let you know if you're listening this week before uh, the evening of June 1st on Saturday that our Local 10 Hurricane Special, uh, Luke and I will be a part of that. Of course, Betty uh, and I will host that along with Max and Julie and Brandon. We'll be from the panhandle uh, to the Keys and, and talking about hurricanes and uh, all the variety of things that we learned and things that that, uh, we still need to pay attention to here in Florida as we approach another hurricane season. And be on the lookout for the Brian Norcross Talks Tropics newsletter. You're going to be able to sign up this year for it on Local10.com, and it will get, uh, you'll be notified when there's a new one out, and when there's something going on, there's a new one out just about uh, every day. Are these like the ones that you send internally? Yeah, so it'll be the same ones that we had last year. Uh, I've been putting them for some years on Facebook, and then last year we put them on Local10.com. And so I try and summarize the kind of what you need to know. Very helpful and uh, kind of the nuts and bolts, so I find them very useful. I mean, they they work for everybody. Well, yeah, I'm trying to talk to not just uh, meteorologists, but, you know, kind of talk to everybody about that. All right, let's uh, let's just talk one second here about what's going on out there right now. I mean, uh, the most remarkable thing is this super dry air over us and the incredible heat to our north and and how that high pressure is making our weather exceptionally nice for late May. Well, it's interesting because we've heard a lot about the severe weather in the Plains states. There was a low that developed over California that actually broke records for how powerful that low pressure was at the mid-levels of the atmosphere. In response to that, we got this exceptionally strong high pressure on the east side of the, the southeast side of the country, and that's what we are under. That's why they're getting the extreme heat to our north, one of the record hottest Memorial Day weekends in parts of North Florida. Yeah, 100, 102 in Gainesville yesterday. How about that? Now, yeah. we thankfully have that east wind that mm-hmm. blows over the Atlantic, and our temperatures in South Florida haven't been all that bad, but what we have had is remarkably dry weather. In fact, if you think of the atmosphere as like a cup, some days the cup has more water than other days, and we have had record low levels of water in our cup, according to some of the things I've seen on Twitter. I haven't for seen this any, time of year. For this 
this time of year, yes. correct. So uh, because of that, it's been sunshine and, you know, the extended weekend stayed completely dry. In fact, uh, just looking, I was talking to our weather producer, Aliana, the last time that we had seen rain over a tenth of an inch, really over two hundredths of an inch in Miami was 14 days ago. It's been a half a month yeah. of dry May. How about that? Yeah, right after the rainy season started. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shut it down. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or that, which is an arbitrary date, by the way, that's chosen as the 15th of May uh, this, uh, these days. But if you actually were to choose when it's starting, it hasn't started yet, I don't think would be the, the consensus. So uh, talking about the weather pattern, the other thing that this high pressure is doing is it's blocking anything from coming out of the Caribbean this way. So we have, once again this year, this, this area of low pressure over Central America, the Central American gyre, which is what Michael came out of. So it's just a persistent area of low pressure there. And the models were actually trying to pull an area of low pressure north, um, kind of in the distant future, a typical kind of uh, phantom development. But because we have this extreme dryness and high pressure over top of Florida, that thing that can happen this time of year, late May, early June, is not likely to happen as long as that high pressure is in place. So we talked about, you know, the heat and that very strong high that we have over the top of Florida and a big chunk of the Caribbean. Where is the dry coming from? Because a lot of times we talk about, you know, we'll get this uh, Saharan dust layer that mm-hmm. comes in or, you know, is it just the sinking motion of I that think high? I think it's the high. The air the air descends, it sinks, and, and uh, like you said, if it weren't flowing off the ocean, and this time of year the ocean is relatively cool compared to what it is when you get to August and September. So the you know, well offshore, the ocean is in the lower 80s now as opposed to the mid to upper 80s later in the summer. Mm. So with that air blowing off the ocean, it keeps us cool, but it's a monstrous area of, of high pressure. The air sinks, it dries out out as it sinks, and and, uh, there we are. So, interesting. We had subtropical storm Andrea form well off the coast of the Carolinas, which brought up the question, what should we do about the beginning of hurricane season? Should it start on May 15th, maybe, because we've had all these developments in May recently? Or there's an idea that, well, you know, almost all of the hurricanes and certainly all of the intense hurricanes don't happen until late July, August, September into October. Maybe hurricane season should begin July 1st or July 15th because that's when hurricanes happen. And these sort of incidental name storms, maybe that doesn't isn't uh, valuable or maybe it should just stay in the Atlantic where it is. Uh, By the way, the Pacific starts the 15th of May. You have an opinion on that? Well, uh, not a strong one, but my initial knee jerk is that uh, this was the fifth or sixth year in a row where we had preseason named storms. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's that common eh, and that's when it begins, I'm more apt to think let's kick it off May 15th with the understanding that the, there is a heart, there's a time where it really ramps up in activity. Uh, but if they are commonly beginning, May 15th. I kind of like that. Yeah, maybe. And maybe that gives people the last two weeks of May while people are generally still in town and so forth. And it becomes a ritual in the last two weeks of May Mm -hmm. of getting ready for hurricane season. So so uh, maybe so. So uh, with that, let's let's uh, bring in Ken Graham, the director of the National Hurricane Center. Ken, you have an opinion about uh, this date in the Atlantic for the hurricane season to begin? 
What a perfect first question, Brian. I love it. It, it, it starts it off perfectly. Look, it, it's it's one of these things. I mean, you look at it, nine, what is it, 97% or so of the main storms are going to be within the, the season in the Atlantic. So, I mean, the season captures most of it. Right. Uh, the preparedness part, yeah, an extra two weeks would be nice. But, I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day in my own personal life. Absolutely incredible at the end of school, all the things ramping up. I, I, I'm really not able the last couple of weeks to even do a lot anyway when it comes to preparedness just being honest so you know it's like it, it's tough and then how do we capture the, the heart of the season when we have the most destructive storms getting towards uh, late august and into, into september so i don't know I, I think i'm not jumping on it too much i guess if it persists um, history will tell if it happens every single year and then we may have to entertain it yeah well the the issue of the july you know the people that think well maybe we should do this in july you know, what they're saying is, well, this will raise awareness now that we are entering the busy part of the season. So anyway, it's an interesting uh, discussion. Ken, you, you have your first uh, full year under your belt. Uh, what have you learned? What stands out? Uh, how do you feel going into the second uh, full season? Hey, Ryan, the first the first season was, was busy for sure. I mean, with Michael and, and Florence, just an incredible uh, busy season. But it was interesting for us here. And it, it didn't just end there. It was it was busy, uh, you know, much of the season in the Atlantic, but the Pacific as well. I mean, we we have storms, you know, in both basins, basically um, really causing a, a lot of activity for us. And you know, not just the landfalls, but the Pacific was really busy too. And I think, you know, some people have asked me, you know, what one of the big takeaways was from your first season. Definitely some takeaways from the the landfalling storms. But the other one is, you know, it, it was interesting the last ten years being the meteorologist in charge in New Orleans, you didn't have the, the international component that you do here. It was interesting, uh, the amount of coordination, uh, the amount of work that, that's involved with the international community as part of this job. I mean, that, that was something, I guess, didn't shock me, but it was definitely a, a, you know kind of a, something different for me my first season. Ken, I just got back from Mexico Beach in Panama City. We went there and shot our hurricane special, a portion of our hurricane special. And uh, areas just still, especially Mexico Beach, devastated from Category 5 hurricane, what is now Category 5 Hurricane Michael. couple questions for you. One is clarification uh, on the recovery and something that stood out to me from talking to people that uh, were living in you know, trailers or you know, barely livable homes is the FEMA funds. And the way that I understood is they had an initial preliminary round of relief that came from FEMA that was very abbreviated. But the main FEMA funds are still locked up in a debate over how much is going to be released uh, for Hurricane Michael recovery. And then in the meantime, insurance companies are filling in the gaps for those that have insurance. So what that means is that you have some people that don't have insurance that uh, or they were self-insured and they don't have any help. But do I understand that properly, that the main FEMA relief for Mexico Beach has yet to be released? Yeah, we don't get involved with that at all, to be honest. We're, I mean, here at the Hurricane Center, it's all about you know, getting people ready for the next season. It's getting the, you know, making sure we can do the best we can with the forecast, the watches and warnings. As for a lot of that, it, it's not something that, that we're involved in. We really do 
spend almost all of our time on the science and the communication part of getting the information out to make sure it's actionable. Ah, sure, okay. Um, just it was it was surprising to me to see. That. I would have thought that hey, we have the the funds are set aside, they're ready to be deployed, and then the event hits and and but uh, but I understand uh, not your um, you know what you guys are directly involved in. The, the second question then was Michael is one of four Category 5 landfalling hurricanes over the continental U.S., and all of these share a similar trait uh, that they were uh, not much a few days before, maybe a tropical storm. Uh, is that a, a big lesson that we can learn from Hurricane Michael? Well, I think that one's huge, and that's it's something that we, we put our heads together here and we kind of looked at the history of these, you know, the, the strongest of storms, those Category 5s, and and that was that was a, a big takeaway from that because when we when we talk about storms and getting ready for them, it's, it's all about that timeline, and you know how much time that you have. You have a storm like Florence, where you know you can see a wave come off of Africa, and you you for ten days plus you watch this system uh, develop across the Atlantic. I mean, ten days. I mean, it's almost, but you know, there's almost fatigue by the time the system gets there. There's just so much information. But, but with Michael, you know, you had three, four days notice on a Category 5. So we, we looked at that in history, and it was really interesting. The Labor Day storm, Hurricane Camille, and you, and you look at um, Andrew and Michael were the Category 5 storms to, to hit this country. And interesting, five days before landfall, the Labor Day storm, Camille and Michael, didn't even exist. Andrew was out there as a tropical storm. And if you look at three days prior, every single one, of those Category 5 landfalls that hit the United States were tropical storms three days prior, which means all of them um, underwent uh, rapid intensification. So the timeline is something we have to, to talk about because some of the stronger storms, at least on the, the wind scale, um, really not a whole lot of notice on these things. They're all rapid intensification. They all come quick. And the fact that we have storms like Florence and Irma that we watch for a long time, I think, makes the communications even more difficult when you have the possibility of something developing quickly because people just aren't uh, in the rhythm for the, the possibility of things happening really quickly. Again, uh, hurricane specialist there and your team there, uh, Jack Bevan and, and Stacy Stewart, did this exhaustive study on the data from right before Michael made landfall, and that resulted in the Category 5 ranking, but there's still some science related to the SFMR that, that uh, Jack in his report talks about really has to be pinned down that still puts a little question mark, not necessarily on whether it was a Category 5, but maybe they don't, still don't have the number uh, exactly right. C can you talk about uh, this idea of uh, continuing to evaluate the science and how that might affect uh, the ratings on storms uh, on Michael and even storms, uh, you know, looking back in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I know every, every one of these storms we, we do a reanalysis on. We're always looking for the latest science and the, and the latest techniques to be able, be able to look at it, re-examine storms. I mean, it, it's interesting with uh, Hurricane Andrew, uh, Brian, I think it took 10 years to, to come up with, with that rating. It takes a long time to, to really go through that data. And, and with Michael, I mean, a lot of it, the data, you don't have real time. I mean, if you think about, you know, the radar on the ground, we have that information. You have observations on the ground. Um, sometimes, you know, they're, they're sparse where you don't have every piece of information that, that you'd like. So there's ways to get some of that information. But one of them is 
you know, looking at the aircraft radar. And, and if you think about an aircraft in a hurricane, I mean, there's turbulence. The, 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 the wings go up, the wings go down, and that changes the angle of the radar, what it's looking at. So a full analysis has to, be, to take place to really examine the data from, from the aircraft. And it's interesting when, when the radar points in different directions, sometimes you don't have any data at all. And you have to do a, you know, kind of an interpolation between data points. So that analysis, you're right, they, they spent so much time doing that analysis, and, and that's where they came up with, you know, the Category 5. You know, it's only a five-mile-an-hour change, but it still crossed that threshold to a Category 5. But as we look into the future, there may be new techniques to look at that data. There may be uh, new methods that, that could change that um, in the future as well. So, you know, it's always about having the best science. That way, that, that's why we always continue to look at them now and into the future to make sure we got it right. With both Florence and Michael, the limits of our ability to, to accurately forecast the intensity of the storms came into play. And with Florence, it strengthened under very unusual circumstances. Uh, then it weakened very quickly, more quickly even uh, than, than once thought. And then Michael uh, was kind of the opposite, where it rapidly strengthened much faster than any model or, or human forecaster had um, necessarily been, been issuing. So how do you think is the best way to for, uh, communicate a forecast, which is usually very specific about the future strength of the storm, given the realities of the science. I tell you, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to the intensity. You know, we've we've gotten so much better with not just uh, the the track forecast, which has been an incredible leap forward, but think about based on a good track forecast. Now, now we can do you know very accurate analysis of the storm surge and also the rainfall. If you got a good track and a good speed you could do a, a good job in the storm surge and the rainfall. So the intensity is still tough. Um, you know, we're still, there's still, we have more to learn. I mean, there's still some science that, that we have to learn. Is it the ocean parameters? Is it the upper atmospheres? Is it the storm itself? With Florence, there was an eyewall replacement, and Florence never recovered. I mean, looking at the data, we were behind the power curve, you know, the intensity with Florence at the beginning playing catch-up, and then towards the end during that eyewall replacement, we overdid the intensity. So we still struggle with it. And with Michael, you know, a good track forecast, but, uh, you know, the forecast at the Hurricane Center was way above the guidance, but it wasn't above enough with that, that rapid intensification. So um, intensity is still a struggle. We, we, you know, we always talk about plan for uh, one up. I think the, the biggest thing is to be open and honest with the verification and say we're, we're getting, you know, very good with where it's going to go. We're getting good with those impacts. But um, that intensity can, can, can really be tough on us. But um, the other factor here with the communication is, you know, of course the, the intensity is just the wind. All the impacts, the rain, the storm surge, all of that is, is generally independent of, of that wind. It's, it's more the structure of the storm. It's the size of the storm. It's the forward motion. So continuing trying to, to decouple basically all these impacts with, with the wind speed, I think, helps with that communication. But um, we, we still have work to do with that intensity forecast. Although the bottom line is you don't want people at the coast to be surprised. And in the case of Florence, maybe they were ready for a slightly windier storm than they got. But, indeed, they weren't really surprised in terms of the wind or the rain, actually. The forecast, in general, uh, gave them notice, even though many, many people didn't understand what they should do about it. And in the case of Michael... So a Category 3, borderline Category 4 storm was forecast, but you couldn't really make the case that people weren't notified that a very strong hurricane was coming, mm -hmm. right, in, in spite of the fact that they got uh, more than they expected. 
Ken, when you when you even with this this track uh, forecast dramatic improvement over our time looking at these things, uh, you guys are looking now at, at doing a seven day forecast, and I guess for some years off and on it's been done internally at the Hurricane Center. But uh, I remember at uh, one of the conferences that you showed a forecast about seven days out for Florence that had it heading up into the middle of the ocean. But what are you, what's your thought on seven-day forecasts and just uh, forecasts even five days out that, that uh, sometimes they're quite uncertain and there is this phenomenon with people where when they get good news, they kind of stop paying attention. And the, does a seven-day forecast give people another opportunity to get the news they want to hear and stop paying attention when indeed uh, you know, things can change a lot over seven days? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting with the Florence case, you know, looking at the, the model data, uh, the day six and seven day forecast recurbed Florence out, out into the Atlantic. So there's there's a there's a phenomenon called anchoring and it's it's basically, you know, this uh, a way that we as human beings we look at that first piece of information and we latch onto it and, and we, we may or may not look again for a while. And and so that happens. So in a case like that, you're you're going into a holiday weekend uh, the models show six and seven days out that there's recurvature. Decisions will be made to, to go on vacation, to go to that fish camp, to go somewhere where you may be out, out of tune with the latest forecast for a while. So it, it raises the issue, you know, of course, the further we go out in time, the, the more, you know, the more error associated with the, the, the hurricane that we have. So how do you depict these errors? Is it, is it a larger cone? Is it is there another way to, to express this this uncertainty? So that's what we're we're looking at. I mean, it you know what do you do with a a 700 mile or a thousand mile error in, in in the forecast that far out? So we're we're trying to think about from the science perspective, but also how to communicate that uh, well ahead of time because that's a real case. That and that is a real case with with Florence, and in, and if you come back two days prior. Then, then you're really cutting your timeline pretty short in, in that preparedness. So we're doing it in-house. We're studying it. We're looking at it. We're trying to figure out what to do about it. We actually have a whole social and behavioral science project on, ongoing as we speak, looking at the cone, looking at how the cone is interpreted, looking at decisions that are made based on the cone. Um, is, is there a way that we can extend the forecast to include it in the cone, or is there a whole other way? That, that we should do this. So I think that's some of the conversations that we're having. We're doing it in-house. And by the way, every one of these conferences, after, after the first number one question we always get, you all probably get it too, is, you know, what's the season going to be like? That's of question course. one. Um, the next, a lot of times with emergency managers, the next question is, when, when can we get a, a forecast further out in time? We're working on it. It's just, you know, how, guys, how do, we, how do we show that on a map that doesn't create a false sense of uh, security uh, far out. Ken, you just touched on a question I had for you, which is the kind of annoying subject of seasonal forecast, because, you know, that is about the number of storms, and that's what the concentration is. And, you know, sometimes you get these, you know, weak uh, little systems like we had with Andrea, and then other times you have, you know, what is actually a relatively quiet season on a whole, and you get a high-impact storm like 1992 and Hurricane Andrew. So what do you think about seasonal forecasts? You know, I, I think there's a place, of course. I'm sure some people are, are using those to, to maybe some long-term planning. They're, they're good for maybe some overall long-term planning. But on, on the ground with, with the public and, and for all of us, 
you know, that, that forecast is the, the total number. It, it's not about landfall. It does not make a prediction about how many that we're going to have landfall, and that's, that's what really impacts people, um, you know, really those landfall forecasts. So, you know, the way to look at it is this, and I, I think I answer it the same way every time. I kind of feel bad, but I, but I, I keep answering it this way. And 92, you brought it up. I mean, that's a perfect example. Look, if there's one, it could be one storm um, on Earth. If it impacts you, then it's a busy season. So I think it's so critical that people realize, you know, no matter what that forecast is, it doesn't change your, your preparedness. It doesn't change how you prepare. You have to prepare as if you're going to be hit every single year. Because I've given talks where the forecast was below average or average, and invariably – Somebody in the audience, you'll hear. Somebody will sound relieved yes, exactly. that that the lower forecast, and it's, it's quite frankly, it's very dangerous. It, you have to prepare as if you're going to be hit every single year. You can't let your guard down. Ken, on that other point of uh, notifying, or the National Hurricane Center kind of notifying emergency managers sooner. In the general realm of the public, now I know that you folks are coordinating with with emergency managers well in advance of of the public information, but from a public standpoint, really before the watch comes out, which is nominally, what, 60 hours-ish before uh, actual landfall, there isn't a lot of information coming out of the National Hurricane Center. The, The space kind of filled by people like me and Luke and other other folks in the media um, on every kind of media there is. Have you uh, thought about filling that space somehow uh, in that pre-watch time with more kind of official information, official analysis from the Hurricane Center? Yeah, you know, I think, I think we're trying to fill that void with, you know, definitely doing that, um, you know, with the emergency managers and the briefings like you're saying. But I, I think there's you know, we're using social media uh, to try to get some of that information out. Where, you know, you, you actually got a forecast, and um, you know, it's at, at a point we got the potential tropical cyclone uh, product that goes out. And by the way, that doesn't—it's interesting. That doesn't seem like to most people like like a too big of a deal. But you know, in the past, we only had a had a cone, Washington warning, whenever we named the storm, whenever the wind criteria was met. To, to have a, a named storm. And now with this potential tropical cyclone product, it's interesting. Uh, look at the numbers. It, it's on an average, I think it was 15.6 extra hours of, on the timeline. So we can issue some of those products even before the storm even develops. And I, I think that's a way I think we're trying to, to fill that void. Um, but it, But it's difficult. It goes back to the previous discussion that we had about, you know, you start looking at the, the average errors uh, far out, um, you know, especially day six and seven. What, what do you do with a, an error 700 miles or 1,000 miles? I think a lot of it is us being able to communicate on social media saying, look, you know, it's pretty far out. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty with the storm. Now's the time to start checking out your plans to make sure you have things ready, uh, that sort of thing, to make sure that uh, people can get their kits um, finalized for, for the event. So I think that's where, how we're trying to do it. Um, and I, I think some of the social behavioral science, when we get the data, I think we're going to have some clues on how we could do that better. I think we're going to have ways that we can incorporate the, the day six and seven day uh, forecast in, into what we do. I don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, there's there's all this talk about a dynamic cone that really is not necessarily based on the average error over the last five years, but maybe it's uh, based on the error of that storm, you know, the uncertainty of the confidence. Right, the we spread have of the ensembles or something, yes. Yes. 
So maybe it's the ensemble spread. So I, I think the data is going to come back, and I think Brian and I, you know, I talked to, to you about this, and I've talked to others about these in the conference. Once we get that data, we're going to share it openly and say, okay, now we see the problem. Now, now we see a general direction. Um, together we're going to have to come up with a better way to do it because we've got to invest in this together because the worst thing I could do is just say, well, we're doing it this way and make things worse. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to getting that information and coming up with better ways to do that. Almost any time that you hear anything about a you know a tropical cyclone forecast, the term models gets brought up, and we have uh, one of the main American models is what we call the GFS, and there's a big change coming to this model. In fact, it's already been uh, kind of used, and it's, it's being monitored for how well it does. So uh, we've seen with this new version some mixed results with hurricanes. Um, is it challenging to incorporate a new model into regular use, and uh, is there enough track record with the new GFS model uh, that you have confidence in it yet? Well, I mean, at least it's based on the previous model, so we have some expectations with with the new model. And the new model is called FV3, and it's you know it's it's pretty similar. And we've looked at it. We've actually gone back and done done a reanalysis of, of previous storms using the new model, and we find like with any new thing you're going to find pluses and minuses we, we found some some modest improvement intensity so we found a couple places where you know there's some improvements in in the intensity uh we we see some modest um, um improvements with with the track in the short term where we found some issues is some of the long-term forecasting um a, a little more error associated with the model but that's growing pains i, I think once we start looking at getting more data into it, we can find out exactly what parameters there are that need to be tweaked. And I, I think the model will be continuing to be uh, changed and tweaked with time to make it better. I think there's incredible potential with the, this new model, but with any new model, there's going to be some growing pains. And I, the other factor here is, is pretty important. When we, you know, a lot of people do their own model analysis. I mean, they got, I always joke about this, you know, 15 years ago to see those spaghetti plots. We used to have to go into uh, dial into a, a Navy computer, enter a secret password just to see those spaghetti plots. I remember it well, yes. <laughs> yeah, true story. Yes. Now it's on your phone, right? I mean, right. you get it on your phone, you guys show it, everybody shows it. It's just what we do. But I think one thing everybody has to realize here at the Hurricane Center, we really don't use those deterministic lines. We don't, lines. We don't have a single solution for those models. We really use an ensemble, and it's, it's interesting looking at what performs the best. If, if you take the GFS or the European model and, and we have 30 or 40 different solutions per model, now we're talking 60. And, and added into the others, maybe 70 plus. We use these ensembles. We blend them. We tweak them based on what model seems to be doing the best. And that, that blend seems to be the best forecast. And we, we, we place a lot of stock in that blend in, in the Hurricane Center's forecast. Yeah, every year it's the consensus models that that uh, do the best. Ken, before we let you go, you talked about some new things coming along from the National Hurricane Center. Uh, anything you want to highlight that uh, people can expect this year or in the next few years uh, in terms of, of the kinds of products or information coming from your folks? Well, we're really striving to get that forecast out to seven days. We've talked a lot about that, but and, and really, the sense that we talked about it in, in this podcast was about the actual forecast. But there's another part we're trying to extend. We're trying to, you know, get the storm surge forecast further out. I mean, if you think about it, that storm surge uh, prediction 
is, is the basis for a lot of evacuations uh, along the coastline in this country. So the further we can get that out, the better. It's one, one of the now we've had huge leaps in storm surge getting that information out, and I think we've had some success. But the loss still only goes out at 48 hours. Right. Um, so and an evacuation sometimes that. have to be done well before 48 That's hours. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the issue. The biggest piece of feedback we got after, great, we love it. But the next piece of feedback we get is, well, I've already made a lot of decisions by then. That's fair. That's a yes. fair statement. So we're working very hard to get uh, that, that watch out for storm surge out to 72 hours. I think that's coming. The other part of storm surge that I think is interesting is that we're, we're working very hard to get waves incorporated into that forecast. And we saw that in, in Michael where uh, when we put out a, a prediction for the storm surge, that, that's storm surge only. That doesn't include waves. Right. So you can have, we saw it in Katrina, I remember some of those those sites, you know, waves could be, you know, even higher than that. So we're trying to get waves um, also under the storm surge forecast. And another one is, I think it's exciting. For the first time, we have uh, enough of the elevation data. We have enough enough of the bathymetry data for Puerto Rico, um, Haiti, Dominican, um, for the Virgin Islands as well. We're, we're going to have storm surge forecasts, watches and warnings uh, for the first time this year uh, for those locations. So. It's, um, I think all those are exciting tools, but long-term, I'm excited to get this, the social science data back. I'm excited to see how we can make all sorts of improvements to our products and services uh, to, to make sure that they're understood. I, this is another thing that, that we talk about. A perfect forecast is fine and dandy, but unless it's understood and actionable, it doesn't, that last mile is lost. It doesn't do much good. Yeah, right. The forecasts have gotten better much faster than our ability to communicate them clearly. I think yeah. uh, right. there's no question about that. All right, Ken Graham, the director of the National Hurricane Center. Thanks so much for kicking off a second season of, of a podcast here, Ken. We'll no doubt be uh, seeing you soon. Thanks very much. You bet. All right. Uh, getting ready for his second year, and they are doing um, lots of lots of new things. And this, the success of the storm surge forecast in the United States has gotten the attention of the people in the Caribbean, not just the U.S. territories in the Caribbean, but the Dominican Republic, for example. They've uh, now modeled, and uh, other countries in the Caribbean will be uh, modeled down the road. So Jamie Rome and his team are, are, are really busy on that project. It's interesting how it seems like the storm surge forecasts have been very well done, mm -hmm. and it seems like it's by far the most complex because the angle of the storm, the uh, how big the storm is, he said bathymetry, so what are the coastline like? How deep is the water? What's the shelf? How far out is the shelf? A whole lot goes into making a, an accurate um, storm surge forecast, and they, they seem to be doing a really good job with it. It's it's nice. Well, the addition of the waves won't have a tremendous effect on us here in Florida because uh, the way that the shelf is, we don't get monstrous waves here in general. Although on the East Coast, with a storm coming directly from the east, we'll get pretty big uh, waves. It's in the Northeast where you get huge waves, and the storm surge... Uh, the uh, tide levels swing up and down five feet, six feet, nine feet. It's an incredible difference that all these things can make. So, so, uh, but like on the Gulf Coast in Michael, where you have that very shallow shelf, most of the energy is is in pushing the water higher, not in in making bigger waves. So anyway, so the whole thing is very interesting. And storm surge, the reason it wasn't done more precisely for so long is because it is so complex and the modeling 
uh, really had to advance, and and it was really prescient of folks at the Hurricane Center, what, 10 years ago, that they put together the storm surge unit led by Jamie Rome, and, and they've made tremendous progress. He mentioned a dynamic cone. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? That's interesting. Yes. So, so I don't think there's any question that the cone needs help. <laughs> the problem with the cone is that it got defined back in the day by the average error over 10 years. So to, if you go 10 years back, the, uh, the error was much greater than it is today, right? But because the cone incorporated 10-year-old uh, errors, it was pretty big. And because it was pretty big, that meant that the bad weather most often stayed within the cone. Because the current forecasts were better than they were 10 years ago, but you're making a cone based on you know distant past forecasts. And also, when a strong storm is approaching the coast, the NOAA and the National Weather Service Hurricane Center is gathering all this extra data that they don't have on a daily basis. So the forecasts are better for storms close to landfall. So the storm is more likely to stay near the center of the cone. So back when they did these 10-year time periods, you had big cones with a storm more likely to stay near the center. So the cone contained the bad weather. Now that it's only the last five years that the cone is based on, uh, the cone has narrowed such that now the bad weather, the dangerous weather is always outside the cone. So you start with that problem that the cone doesn't any longer mean uh, being in the cone is bad, being out the cone, out of the cone is at least safer. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that anymore. So uh, I think, my opinion is that whatever the solution is, we need to get back to where in the cone is unsafe, preparation is necessary, right? And out of the cone uh, is somewhat safer, and then let's talk about whether preparation is necessary, right? So that, uh, because so many people get their information on the phone, and when you get the cone on the phone, that's all you get. You want to get to the bottom line of what that's telling you as easily as possible without a whole lot of extra communications required to know what the threat is, right? So if it's not the cone, then what is it? I don't know what it is besides the cone. But to me, the bottom line needs to be that the cone needs to mean some level of danger or preparation. Which is what they use hurricane watch and warning for now, correct? Right, exactly. Which is a, which is, so what's happened is the cone is, there was a time the cone has sort of supplanted that because now you get warned by cone before you get warned by warning. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right? When the cone is kind of aimed at you, which can be six or seven days out, just aimed in your direction, people feel warned. Right? So it's it's a little convoluted. So figuring out the cone, what the, the cone is going to actually just mean to people, and how that's going to work with watches and warnings, uh, it's a task. It's an interesting task. Uh, going back to Michael, so uh, what were your impressions, uh, and, and what did people tell you about this? Were they relieved that it was a Category 5? Did they feel better about it at some level, do you think, because it got upgraded to a Category 5? I got n- no sense of relief while I was there. I mean, <laughs> people are—there's— n- 
Yeah, it's still terrible. It's terrible. It's yeah. really bad. I, my one takeaway is it is what I expected Category 5 hurricane damage to be. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that people said about, and I asked that a number of times, I said, hey, is this going, this probably gather more attention on the storm. Hopefully this will shed new light again on this community and maybe we'll get some more resources. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe money will start coming back in. Maybe this is going to rattle some some uh, trees and we'll get some, uh, uh, whatever, more help from uh, officials. And they said, no, that's not really happening yet mm-hmm. anyway. And we knew it was a five. You know, look around. <laughs> and that, that's, that was the, the mentality of it. Um, so, yeah, that was my big takeaway is, I mean, the place is bad. Yeah. Mexico Beach especially. Panama City as well, though. Parts of Panama City took some really serious wind damage. But you walk along Mexico Beach and houses are gone. I mean, there was one group that we were talking to. It was a husband and a wife, and they are living in a rented FEMA trailer. Their insurance company is paying rent to FEMA Mm -hmm. for this trailer, which I I was a little confused by. And uh, anyway, they're on a slab where their house was built, their dream retirement home that they moved to two weeks before uh, the hurricane hit. And uh, I mean, just they're gone. Their neighbors are gone. Everybody all along where the storm surge was especially is gone. And uh, I mean, yeah, well, anytime a strong hurricane comes ashore, especially on the Gulf Coast of Florida, or the Gulf Coast of the U.S. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, on the Mississippi coast in February after the August Hurricane Camille landfall. And driving down U.S. 90 there, you can look to the north where these huge mansions used to be along U.S. 90 there in in Biloxi, and all that was left were the steps. Mm -hmm. That was it. And, you know, apartment buildings and everything else, all that was left. Sometimes you had a big box store like a Kmart or something where the side walls and the roof would be there, but no front or back wall because you get there 20 feet of storm surge coming in there. In the case of Michael, it was 15 feet or so. In the case of of Camille, it was 24 feet. You get that storm surge coming in with that power of that, you know, wind blowing at 150 or 170 miles an hour, pushing that water. (laughs) It's <laughs> a lot of energy. It's a lot of power. Even away from the storm surge, you would go further inland, and the, I forget the name. There was some sort of a ridge that basically was the end of the storm surge. Mm-hmm. Go past that, and then the common site didn't become you know houses leveled to the ground. Right. It would be they would have uh, you know a big chunk of the house would be exposed. The uh, part of the roof would be gone, or uh, one of the outside walls would be gone, and all that would be left would be the interior walls. Right. That was well, a pretty common. Because that's site. a building code problem, and yeah. and unfortunately when the Florida Building Code was enacted, they elected there, and there was a big push by the representation in the Florida legislature to not have that part of the panhandle adhere to the same standards, even at the western part of the panhandle adhere to. So the buildings that were allowed to be built in Panama City were weaker than the buildings that were allowed to be built in Pensacola. It was a craziness. Yeah. Just pure, pure insanity that that was uh, allowed. So that doesn't make it any better for the folks that, that live there by any means. But but unfortunately, you know, that's the reality. They weren't living in reality of of it just admitting that all of Florida is a hurricane zone and we need to construct buildings that have that in mind. Well, maybe this ties into because one other thing that stood out to me is people were talking about price gouging. They say, hey, we have an event, uh, a hurricane, 
and two days later, gas stations are charging $6 a gallon. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. It's called price gouging. Mm -hmm. But they said you can do it with houses, apparently, because my house was valued at $150 a square foot before the hurricane. That's what they were building homes for. And now, after the hurricane, uh, they're saying, no, it's going to cost $350 or $400 a square foot to rebuild your home. And they can't afford to do that. And they said this is gouging. Um, is that because of code? Would code cause that? So there's a couple of things. One is the code uh, would no doubt cause it because things are a little more expensive. But also there was a tremendous, and there always is after every hurricane, tremendous labor shortage. So there's a supply and demand issue as well with just people to do the work. And uh, unfortunately, you try and repair your home, you'd have somebody come, and then they'd get a better offer down the street or in the next town or, you know, uh, wherever you, you had trouble keeping people, and it's not that populated a place. So suddenly to have to have all these contractors come in, it's uh, far exceeded the ability to have enough labor. I mean, we had that problem in after Hurricane Andrew here in as big a place as, as we live here in South Florida, and we would have it again if uh, we had a big hurricane here. So so that's a a challenge. Now, after Hurricane Andrew and after other hurricanes, Wilma and uh, hurricanes in 2005 here in, in South Florida, they were, they were very clear after the storm that they were going to be very vigilant at a state level about price gouging. Now, um, you know, where that stood in Panama City, I don't know. And how that applies legally to the construction question, I don't know. But I do know that there was a tremendous shortage, and there is even today. A tremendous shortage of people available to do the work in that relatively sparsely populated part of Florida. Definitely a problem and something that seems like, you know, you know it's just it's part of the post-hurricane hell. Yeah, it is. It is. And it is a nobody wants to live through that. I mean, having done that here, uh, I can tell you nobody wants to live through that. Now, Ken was talking about the instrument uh, he referred to as the radar, It's the, but it's a radiometer. I mean, in shorten it up radar, but it's this SFMR. And the SFMR, what it does is it looks from the airplane down at the foam on the ocean, and it, it, it there are six bands of uh, radiation that come up off that foam that are analyzed by this, this instrument. And that's how these days we get actual readings of how strong the winds are down at the ocean level. So what an, it's a, such an unusual method to evaluate the intensity of a of a hur or the the wind speed of a hurricane. But I mean, some genius thought that yeah, one. Yeah. So Dr. Pete Black and the folks at the Hurricane Research uh, Division here in Miami uh, worked on that, and and uh, it's continuing to be refined the data and how you analyze the data. So one of the questions is. What happens in super strong hurricanes? There's some indication that the SFMR either returns uh, wind readings that are too high in super strong hurricanes, like Michael or like Irma, or the winds are actually stronger than we think. So there's, that's what this research is going on right now. In the next couple of years, hopefully there'll be some fruition uh, to that, and we'll get a a better analysis or understanding of why we're getting these super strong readings out of these ultra strong hurricanes. Um, like we, we saw 175 mile an hour measurements out of Michael. But that was not included in the post-hurricane analysis, not, right? It, it was discounted at this point. We also had stronger readings in Irma when it was way out there and super strong. Hmm. 
you know, so discounted at this point. But if it starts, if it turns out that it seems to be right, then that will or may require reanalysis of other storms and going back and looking at the data. So anyway, it's going to be interesting. So this year, it's to 2019, unbelievably, 50 years since Hurricane Camille, talking about Category 5 hurricanes. And uh, we'll talk about that coming up this season. 75 years ago this year was 1944, and there were two significant hurricanes uh, that season that uh, we'll talk about. One hit Florida, as a matter of fact, even affected us here in South Florida. And 100 years ago this year, 1919, was a great hurricane that affected the Keys. And in Key West, it just blew and blew and blew and blew. They thought it was never going to stop. And it uh, moved on eventually to Corpus Christi. And a guy who became very, very famous in hurricanes, Bob Simpson, was, I think, six years old during that storm. And that was formidable in his career. I've heard you talk about this hurricane in some of our chit-chats that we have yeah. in the weather office. I'm curious it's, to hear it's a, it's a It's a, a fascinating storm. So that's our uh, podcast uh, number one for the 2019 season. Reminder once again that the Local 10 Hurricane Special is coming up 8 p.m. June 1st. That's Saturday on uh, Channel 10 in South Florida. And be on the lookout for Brian Norcross Talks uh, Tropics, the newsletter that will be part of this hurricane season. And you'll be able to sign up for that on Local10.com. So for now, I'm Brian Norcross, along with meteorologist Luke Doris here in the Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami, I guess. <laughs> and uh, have, a good, uh, have a good week. We'll see you again in June with the next podcast, and we'll ramp up full-time here when we get to the heart of the hurricane season in August. Take care.